Today I'll be reading The Opinion of the Court in Biden v. Nebraska, decided June 30, 2023. Chief Justice Roberts delivered the opinion of the court in which Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Barrett filed a concurring opinion. Justice Kagan filed a dissenting opinion in which Justices Sotomayor and Jackson joined. To ensure that Americans could keep up with increasing international competition, Congress authorized the first federal student loans in 1958, up to a total of $1,000 per student each year. Outstanding federal student loans now total $1.6 trillion, extended to 43 million borrowers. Last year, the Secretary of Education established the first Comprehensive Student Loan Forgiveness Program, invoking the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, HEROES Act, for authority to do so. The Secretary's plan canceled roughly $430 billion of federal student loan balances, completely erasing the debts of 20 million borrowers and lowering the median amount owed by the other 23 million from $29,400 to $13,600. Six states sued, arguing that the HEROES Act does not authorize the loan cancellation plan. We agree. Part 1. Section A. The Higher Education Act of 1965, or Education Act, was enacted to increase educational opportunities and assist in making available the benefits of post-secondary education to eligible students in institutions of higher education. To that end, Title IV of the Act restructured federal financial aid mechanisms and established three types of federal student loans. Direct loans are, as the name suggests, made directly to students and funded by the federal FISC. They constitute the bulk of the federal government's student lending efforts. The government also administers Perkins loans, government-subsidized low-interest loans, made by schools to students with significant financial need, and Federal Family Education Loans, or FFELs, loans made by private lenders and guaranteed by the federal government. While FFELs and Perkins loans are no longer issued, many remain outstanding. The terms of federal loans are set by law, not the market so they often come with benefits not offered by private lenders. Such benefits include deferment of any repayment until after graduation, loan qualification regardless of credit history, relatively low fixed interest rates, income-sensitive repayment plans, and, for undergraduates with financial need, government payment of interest while the borrower is in school. The Education Act specifies in detail the terms and conditions attached to federal loans, including applicable interest rates, loan fees, repayment plans, and consequences of default. 
It also authorizes the secretary to cancel or reduce loans, but only in certain limited circumstances and to a particular extent. Specifically, the secretary can cancel a set amount of loans held by some public servants, including teachers, members of the armed forces, Peace Corps volunteers, law enforcement and corrections officers, firefighters, nurses, and librarians who work in their professions for a minimum number of years. The secretary can also forgive the loans of borrowers who have died or been permanently and totally disabled, such that they cannot engage in any substantial gainful activity. Bankrupt borrowers may have their loans forgiven, and the secretary is directed to discharge loans for borrowers falsely certified by their schools, borrowers whose schools close down, and borrowers whose schools fail to pay loan proceeds they owe to lenders. Shortly after the September 11th terrorist attacks, Congress became concerned that borrowers affected by the crisis, particularly those who served in the military, would need additional assistance. As a result, it enacted the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2001. That law provided the Secretary of Education for a limited period of time with specific waiver authority to respond to conditions in the national emergency caused by the September 11th attacks. Rather than allow this grant of authority to expire by its terms, at the end of September 2003, Congress passed the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, or HEROES Act. That act extended the coverage of the 2001 statute to include any war or national emergency, not just the September 11th attacks. By its terms, the Secretary may waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Education Act as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency. The Secretary may issue waivers or modifications only as may be necessary to ensure that recipients of student financial assistance under Title IV of the Education Act who are affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. An affected individual is defined in relevant part as someone who resides or is employed in an area that is declared a disaster area by any federal, state, or local official in connection with a national emergency, or who suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a war or other military operation or national emergency, as determined by the Secretary. And a national emergency for the purposes of the Act is a national emergency declared by the President of the United States. Immediately following the passage of the Act in 2003, the Secretary issued two dozen waivers and modifications addressing a handful of specific issues. Among other changes, 
the secretary waived the requirement that affected individuals must return or repay an overpayment of certain grant funds erroneously dispersed by the government, and the requirement that public service work must be uninterrupted to qualify as an affected individual for loan cancellation. Additional adjustments were made in 2012 with similar limited effects. But the Secretary took more significant action in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. On March 13, 2020, the President declared the pandemic a national emergency. One week later, then-Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos announced that she was suspending loan repayments and interest accrual for all federally held student loans. The following week, Congress enacted the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, which required the Secretary to extend the suspensions through the end of September 2020. Before that extension expired, the President directed the Secretary in light of the national emergency, to effectuate appropriate waivers of and modifications to the Education Act to keep the suspensions in effect through the end of the year. And a few months later, the Secretary further extended the suspensions, broadened eligibility for federal financial assistance, and waived certain administrative requirements. Over a year and a half passed with no further action beyond keeping the repayment and interest suspensions in place. But in August 2022, a few weeks before President Biden stated that the pandemic is over, the Department of Education announced that it was once again issuing waivers and modifications under the Act, this time to reduce and eliminate student debts directly. During the first year of the pandemic, the Department's Office of General Counsel had issued a memorandum concluding that the Secretary does not have statutory authority to provide blanket or mass cancellation, compromise, discharge, or forgiveness of student loan principal balances. After a change in presidential administrations and shortly before adoption of the challenged policy, however, the Office of General Counsel formally rescinded its earlier legal memorandum and issued a replacement reaching the opposite conclusion. The new memorandum determined that the HEROES Act grants the Secretary authority that could be used to effectuate a program of targeted loan cancellation directed at addressing the financial harms of the COVID-19 pandemic. Upon receiving this new opinion, the Secretary issued his proposal to cancel student debt under the HEROES Act. Two months later, he published the required notice of his waivers and modifications in the Federal Register. The terms of the debt cancellation plan are straightforward. For borrowers with an adjusted gross income below $125,000 in either 2020 or 2021 who have eligible federal loans, the Department of Education will discharge the balance of those loans in an amount up to $10,000 per borrower. 
borrowers who previously received Pell Grants qualify for up to $20,000 in loan cancellation. Eligible loans include direct loans, FFEL loans held by the department or subject to the collection by a guarantee agency, and Perkins loans held by the department. The Department of Education estimates that about 43 million borrowers qualify for relief, and the Congressional Budget Office estimates that the plan will cancel about $430 billion in debt principal. Section B. Six states moved for a preliminary injunction claiming that the plan exceeded the Secretary's statutory authority. The District Court held that none of the states had standing to challenge the plan and dismiss the suit. The states appealed, and the Eighth Circuit issued a nationwide preliminary injunction pending resolution of the appeal. The court concluded that Missouri likely had standing through the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, MOHILA, or Authority, a public corporation that holds and services student loans. It further concluded that the state's challenge raised substantial questions on the merits and that the equities favored maintaining the status quo pending further review. With the plan on pause, the Secretary asked this court to vacate the injunction or grant certiorari before judgment to avoid prolonging this uncertainty for the millions millions of affected borrowers. We granted the petition and set the case for expedited argument. Part 2 Before addressing the legality of the Secretary's program, we must first ensure that the states have standing to challenge it. Under Article 3 of the Constitution, a plaintiff needs a personal stake in the case. That is, the plaintiff must have suffered an injury in fact, a concrete and imminent harm to a legally protected interest, like property or money, that is fairly traceable to the challenged conduct and likely to be redressed by the lawsuit. If at least one plaintiff has standing, the suit may proceed. Because we conclude that the Secretary's plan harms Mohila and thereby directly injures Missouri, conferring standing on that state, we need not consider the other theories of standing raised by the states. Missouri created Mohila as a nonprofit government corporation to participate in the student loan market. The authority owns over $1 billion in FFELs. It also services nearly $150 billion worth of federal loans, having been hired by the Department of Education to collect payments and provide customer service to borrowers. Mohila receives an administrative fee for each of the 5 million federal accounts it services, totaling $88.9 million in revenue last year alone. Under the Secretary's plan, roughly half of all federal borrowers would have their loans completely discharged. 
Mohila could no longer service those closed accounts, costing it, by Missouri's estimate, $44 million a year in fees that it otherwise would have earned under its contract with the Department of Education. This financial harm is an injury, in fact, directly traceable to the Secretary's plan, as both the government and the dissent concede. The plan's harm to Mohila is also a harm to Missouri. Mohila is a public instrumentality of the state. Missouri established the authority to perform the essential public function of helping Missourians access student loans needed to pay for college. To fulfill this public purpose, the authority is powered by the state to invest in or finance student loans, including by issuing bonds. It may also service loans and collect reasonable fees for doing so. Its profits help fund education in Missouri. Mohila has provided $230 million for development projects at Missouri colleges and universities and almost $300 million in grants and scholarships for Missouri students. The authority is subject to the state's supervision and control. Its board consists of two state officials and five members appointed by the governor and approved by the Senate. The governor can remove any board member for cause. Mohila must provide annual financial reports to the Missouri Department of Education, detailing its income, expenditures, and assets. The authority is therefore directly answerable to the state. The state sets the terms of its existence, and only the state can abolish Mohila and set the terms of its dissolution. By law and function, Mohila is an instrumentality of Missouri. It was created by the state to further a public purpose, is governed by state officials and state appointees, reports to the state, and may be dissolved by the state. The Secretary's plan will cut Mohila's revenues, impairing its efforts to aid Missouri college students. This acknowledged harm to Mohila in the performance of its public function is necessarily a direct injury to Missouri itself. We came to a similar conclusion 70 years ago in Arkansas v. Texas, 1953, Arkansas sought to invoke our original jurisdiction in a suit against Texas, claiming that Texas had wrongfully interfered with a contract between the University of Arkansas and a Texas charity. Texas argued that the suit could not proceed because the university did not stand in the shoes of the state. The harm to the university, as Texas saw it, was not a harm to Arkansas sufficient for the state to sue in its own name. We disagreed. We recognized that Arkansas must, of course, represent an interest of her own and not merely that of her citizens or corporations, but we concluded that Arkansas was in fact seeking to protect its own interests because the university was an official state instrumentality. The state had labeled the university an instrument of the state in the performance of a governmental work. 
the university served a public purpose, acting as the state's agent in the educational field. The university had been created by the Arkansas legislature, was governed by a board of trustees appointed by the governor with consent of the Senate, and reported all of its expenditures to the legislature. In short, the university was an instrumentality of the state, and any injury under the contract to the university was an injury to Arkansas. So too here. Because the authority is part of Missouri, the state does not seek to rely on injuries suffered by others. It aims to remedy its own. The secretary and the dissent assert that Mohila's injuries should not count as Missouri's because Mohila, as a public corporation, has a legal personality separate from the state. Every government corporation has a distinct personality. It is a corporation, after all, with the powers to hold and sell property and to sue and be sued. Yet such an instrumentality created and operated to fulfill a public function, nonetheless remains, for many purposes at least, part of the government itself. In LeBron v. National Railroad Passenger Corporation, 1995, Amtrak was sued for refusing to display a political advertisement on a billboard at one of its stations. Amtrak argued that it was not subject to the First Amendment because it was a corporation separate from the federal government. Congress had even specified in its authorizing statute that Amtrak was not an agency or establishment of the United States government. Despite this disclaimer, we held that Amtrak remained subject to the First Amendment because it functioned as an instrumentality of the federal government, created by a special statute explicitly for the furtherance of federal governmental goals of ensuring that the American public had access to passenger trains. Its board was appointed by the president, and it had to submit annual reports to the president and Congress. Having been established and organized under federal law, for the very purpose of pursuing federal governmental objectives under the direction and control of federal governmental appointees, Amtrak could not disclaim that it was part of the government. We reiterated the point in Department of Transportation v. Association of American Railroads, 2015. There, railroads argued that giving Amtrak regulatory power was an unconstitutional delegation of government authority to a private entity. We rejected that contention, noting that Amtrak was created by the government, is controlled by the government, and operates for the government's benefit. It was therefore acting as a governmental entity in exercising that regulatory power. That principle holds true here. The secretary and the dissent contend that because Mohila can sue on its own behalf, it, not Missouri, must be the one to sue. But in Arkansas, the University of Arkansas could have asserted its rights under the contract on its own. The university's governing statute made it a body politic 
and corporate with all the powers of a corporate body, including the power to sue and be sued on its own behalf. We permitted Arkansas to bring an original suit all the same. Where a state has been harmed in carrying out its responsibilities, the fact that it chose to exercise its authority through a public corporation it created and controls does not bar the state from suing to remedy that harm itself. The Secretary's plan harms Mohila in the performance of its public function and so directly harms the state that created and controls Mohila. Missouri thus has suffered an injury in fact sufficient to give it standing to challenge the Secretary's plan. With Article Three satisfied, we turn to the merits. We've come to the end of the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.